This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. At the largest online school in the state, many students weren't logging in with any consistency. That's according to an investigation by Education Week. Reporter Ben Harold and one of his colleagues dug into data from Goal Academy. They also found evidence of financial mismanagement. And Harold joins us from Philadelphia. Ben, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start with a sense of scale. How many students are enrolled in Goal Academy? That stands for Guided Online Academic Learning. And how many were logging in regularly? It's a 4,000-plus student school as of last school year, and the data that we looked at was pretty startling. We found that on a typical Wednesday, about 2,600 students weren't using the software at all. So this is a school where the education is provided online. The vast majority of learning is supposed to happen via learning software. More than uh, almost 2,600 students weren't uh, weren't using the software at all on a typical day. Um, Only 19 students were meeting the recommended threshold of about four hours a day. So, you know, it was pretty startling numbers showing that there is a real limited engagement in the academic program at this very large school. Okay, so more than half were not logging on on that typical Wednesday that you looked at. And of the ones truly meeting the requirements, doing the work, it was, what did you say, 19 so the general recommendation from the school was that students should be spending 20 to 25 hours a week uh, on their schoolwork, and the vast majority of that would be online. So we t- looked at how many students uh, in a typical day were spending uh, four or more hours working on the academic online software. And yes, it was only 19 students on a typical day during the spring of 2016. Okay. Can you put that into some context for us? Is that exceptional within cyber schools? Is that... Uh, not exceptional. One of the problems with full-time online charter schools, not just in Colorado, but around the country, is they function kind of as a black box. So uh, they're publicly funded, and across the nation, more than a billion taxpayer dollars a year go into the sector. Um, Researchers have started to document just how poor the academic results are that come out in terms of student test scores, graduation rates, et cetera. But what we really have very limited visibility on as public, as journalists, as policymakers and regulators, is just what's happening um, day-to-day inside the schools. So this type of information about how often students log in and how much time they're spending on their online coursework um, at, at Colorado cyber charter schools and at cyber charter schools around the country, we know very little about this. Um, in Ohio, we've started to see big problems on a similar scale as to what we found at Goal Academy. Uh, but right now, it's still mostly been um, either uh, state agencies or investigative journalists trying to dig out these numbers and see them. So I can say that it's pretty startling and troubling numbers. Um, and there are signs that it's a problem not just at Goal Academy, but throughout the sector. But uh, we, we need a lot more transparency transparency with these schools to really get uh, a sense of how big this problem is. And yet, in some ways, aren't cyber schools also alternative schools dealing with a population of students that has struggled in traditional brick and mortar schools that may actually be holding jobs in addition to going to school? Wouldn't you expect there to be a different kind of engagement? 
Well, that's certainly the defense that many cyber charter, cyber charter operators, including the, the um, executives at Goal Academy, give. And, uh, you know, I think in Goal Academy's case, it is an alternative campus that does serve, a, you know, a hard-to-reach population, many of whom have struggled in traditional settings. And certainly that should be taken into consideration. At Goal Academy, though, I think the question for taxpayers and for regulators and the public to ask is, yes, this is a hard-to-serve population, but we're pouring uh, you know, significant money into this school, about $28 million, uh, state taxpayer dollars a year go to Goal Academy and getting not very great results in this very limited pattern of engagement. It, is this the best way to try and serve that population? And across the country, I think, you know, there there's less evidence when you look at se- sector-wide cyber charters that they serve a population that, that is that different from traditional public schools. Getting not very good results, you say. Is there more to back that up besides the login rates? In other words, what about, I don't know, state test scores, for instance? Sure. Um, at Goal Academy, uh, about f- five or so percent of students typically score proficient on state math exams, which is not good. And, uh, you know, the numbers are slightly better on reading. Uh, so what that means uh, if in Colorado's school accountability framework is it's f- Goal Academy's results are far worse than most schools across the state. They're about middle of the pack relative to other alternative campuses that serve uh, challenging students. Hmm. So, um, you know, they do meet officially their state... Uh, accountability targets, but there are some questions about um, how meaningful those targets are. If I'm a student at Goal Academy, do I ever meet a teacher? Do I ever engage with a teacher online? Or is it merely lessons online that are kind of pre-produced? The the model historically at the school, based on um, all the documents we reviewed and talking with current and former staff and students, is that it's a primarily online experience in terms of the academics. The interactions with certified teachers would typically be either via electronic chats or occasional phone calls or text messages. Goal Academy does have drop-in centers around the state. Typically, it would be a strip mall storefront kind of space. And a student would be able to stop in there for tutoring or other support that would come not from a certified teacher, but from uh, historically from a learning coach that would make around $25,000 a year. Um, The school has said that it is trying to shake up its model, um, in part due to some of the academic struggles it has continued to have and have more teachers, fewer coaches and more uh, face to face and one on one interaction. But as recently as last school year, that was not the reality that we were seeing and hearing from uh, students and staff. Let's talk about the man who started Goal Academy and who's no longer associated with it, I'll say. You did find some damning things about him during your investigation. What prompted him to start this school? Um, Ken Kroll is the founder uh, of Goal Academy, and he was the, the executive director of the school uh, for uh, since 2008 when the school was started. And um, he uh, was a previously an entrepreneur who uh, got very interested in alternative models of education for dropouts and then in technology and online education. So he actually got started in education at a brick-and-mortar charter school network in Colorado called the Cesar Cha- Cesar Chavez Network that ended up running into big problems with uh, nepotism and financial mismanagement and the like. And uh, Mr. Kroll and a few others at the school were able to um, salvage an online program that they had been running running at the Cesar Chavez Network and uh, kind of transition that into becoming its own school. And it started with, you know, just a few hundred students and grew very rapidly to have several thousand students from all across the state. Right. Grew very rapidly. That's true, by the way, of cyber schools, not just in Colorado, but around the country, you find. 
What did you uncover in terms of financial mismanagement by Ken Kroll? And I should say up front that this, these are the kind of twin pillars of the problems that we've seen in the cyber charter sector across the country, um, as well as in Colorado and at Goal Academy, of poor academic performance and limited student engagement, and then financial mismanagement, often uh, as a result of for-profit management of the schools. So what happened with Goal Academy is that uh, Mr. Kroll uh, made, uh, was involved in an effort to spin off a for-profit management company that uh, that he was also the the sole uh, shareholder. And so he had a 100% controlling financial stake in this company. And while he was serving as both the executive director of Goal Academy and the controlling interest in this company, he helped steer uh, a a large contract that ended up being worth about $5.2 million from the school to his own company. Um, And there's a clear conflict of interest. Uh, There remains a dispute uh, between Mr. Kroll and his company and the current leadership of Goal Academy as to whether that conflict was appropriately disclosed. Um, But Mr. Kroll was ultimately forced out of the school and resigned um, as a result of that. To be clear, has he been charged with anything or? Um... He, he has not. And I think that's part of what, uh, why it felt important for us to dig into that part as well. Um, you know, there was a trail of public documents from the Goal Academy board and from the company uh, that kind of chronicled this process. And it ended up getting even messier and continues to be messier because there are other schools now involved as well. Um, but, uh, you know, it's unclear uh, if there was anything illegal that took place. I think the question would largely be if it was unethical or appropriate. And uh, that would be a question that you might expect, you know, an auditor or attorney general to, to look into, or the school's board and regulators. But, you know, at Goal Academy and in Colorado and across the country, there has been very limited oversight and accountability around both the academic performance and these kind of financial mismanagement issues at these types of schools. Which are often connected, as you say, to for-profit enterprises. We're speaking with Benjamin Harold of Education Week, who's written a piece called A Virtual Mess Inside Colorado's Largest Online Charter School. Uh, you were able to speak with Ken Kroll uh, I think his attorneys were present and a publicist. Um, what what did he say about all this? Well, he, he had a couple big points that he wanted to make. One, he disputed the notion that the school is poor performing and really tried to focus on the, the student population that it serves. Um, and he also, uh, you know, was clear that he felt that the conflict of interest he had in running the school and running the company and, uh, you know, playing a role in the contract going between them was appropriately disclosed and that it was ultimately the board's fault. And I think that's something that we really wanted to highlight in this investigation that we did is that this is not a case either, again, at Goal Academy or in the sector more generally of just kind of an occasional bad apple or, you know, bad actor, what we see is kind of a systematic problem of lack of accountability and oversight, where you have individuals with clear conflicts related to for-profit management enterprises with cyber charter schools. And then you also have school boards that are complicit in um, helping schools that have these issues continue to grow. You have cyber charter authorizers who often kind of help fuel that because they have a financial incentive to see the schools grow. And then you see state lawmakers, legislators, uh, 
uh, and regulators often turning a blind eye in part because there's a very active lobby around the cyber charter uh, industry nationally. So there's kind of this systemic problem that leads to poor, uh, poor oversight and limited accountability, which is particularly problematic given this ongoing poor academic performance and the financial mismanagement throughout the sector. Yeah, this isn't the first time Colorado has had issues with online schools. In 06, the state auditor found a lack of oversight. In recent years, the legislature has tried to regulate cyber schools. We reached out to Democratic State Representative Dave Young of Greeley, who's been involved in these issues in the past. He says a major concern is accountability for these schools and for the groups that sponsor them. Uh, you refer to them as authorizers. Uh, he, Dave Young, hopes to work on that in the coming session, starts in January. Very briefly, while Kroll is no longer with Goal Academy, um, he's about to start two more online schools. Is that true? His company uh, has a large contract to help manage the two newest full-time online schools in Colorado. Those schools are already up and running. And again, this was uh, part of why we wanted to really highlight this uh, situation in Colorado, because it reflects this larger pattern of despite these problems, with very few students logging in and, and engaging the online coursework, with poor performance overall, with financial mismanagement, uh, the sector continues to grow, and the individuals who have been involved in these problems continue to get contracts and continue to have roles in this. So um, in the, the Colorado State Board of Education just last spring uh, uh, certified these two new schools to open, being fully aware of uh, the problems that we documented I in this story. And when I talked to uh, the chairman of the State Board of Education, uh, you know, he really felt like uh, – you know, an ideological commitment to school choice and his own personal sense that these schools serve a valuable role mm. was more important than the research and some of the other documented problems we found. That is Ben Harold, reporter at Education Week. His investigation into Colorado's largest online school, Goal Academy, is titled A Virtual Mess. You can read it in full at cprnews.org. Just ahead, why the roots of ISIS can be traced back, at least in part, to Greeley. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A book called Milestones is required reading for today's radical Islamic terrorists. Long before ISIS, the book's author, Sayed Qadab, wanted to create a civilization ruled by Islamic law. He was an Egyptian scholar who grew to hate America. And by some accounts, that hate goes back at least in part to six months he spent in Greeley in northern Colorado in 1949. John Calvert wrote a biography of Qadab. Calvert teaches Middle East history and Islamic studies at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, welcome to the program. Very glad to be with you. This history largely came to light after 9-11, and we've been thinking about it more recently in light of the attack at Ohio State University and certainly the election year focus on ISIS. At OSU, a student drove into pedestrians, then attacked people with a knife. ISIS called him a soldier, and uh, he'd posted on social media about the mistreatment of Muslims. Do you see that student and those types of actions uh, that may be done in the name of terror groups as related to Sayyid Qutb? Well, only remotely. Um, Qutb was one of the leading Islamist ideologues of the 20th century. Um, normative mainstream Islam is about piety and ritual. It's about enacting Quranic principles in society. Um, Isla Islamists believe that Islam has a role to play in politics and public life, that 
God is sovereign over the universe, that God is the only legitimate um, lawmaker. Um, what distinguishes Qutb from other Islamists, such as those belonging to the Muslim Brotherhood, um, was his advocacy of jihad. Um, Qutb believed that the Islamic State should be won through force, through violence, if necessary. And it's not surprising that um, a lot of the leading radical Islamist ideologues today, such as those belonging to al-Qaeda and to some extent ISIS, trace their ideological genealogies uh, back to Qutb, simply because Qutb did advocate jihad, the forceful removal of political regimes that he considered to be um, unethical, ungodly, um, standing in the way of, of, you know, the implementation of God's purpose uh, on earth. So although um, some of these, you know, lone wolf jihadis, um, even some of those who are, you know, are part of the ISIS uh, mainstream, they might not reference Qutb directly. I think uh, indirectly, um, their thought traces back um, to his thought, to his tractate milestones, which has often been referred to as the what is to be done of the uh, radical Islamist movement. Yeah, he was a prolific writer. And I do want to be careful that, you know, we're using the term radical Islam and that that, as you have done, uh, contrasts with a form of Islam that the majority of people practice around the globe. So Qutb was from Egypt. How did he end up in Greeley? And um, what point was that in his life? Well, throughout the 1930s and 1940s, Sayyid Qutb was a mainstream Egyptian nationalist. He wanted the British out of his country. He wanted the political regime in Cairo to implement social justice. Um, there was nothing really to distinguish him from other, you know, died-in-the-wall Egyptian nationalists. Um, but 1947-48, he's attracted to the ideology of the Muslim Brotherhood, these gradualist Islamists that I was talking about. Yeah. Um, during this period, he's also an employee of the Egyptian Ministry of Education. And uh, they send him to the United States to study American educational curricula and pedagogy. He was 42 years old at the time, you know, far older than most um, mission students. So there's been some sort of speculation as to why the government should have sent him. Um, some observers believe it was in order to get him out of the way because he was writing sort of angry letters about the Egyptian government and the press and so forth. Others say it was to sort of mollify his his criticism by, you know, putting him in, in, in touch with um, Western culture, which the regime in Cairo was intent on propagating. So um, he came to the United States in the fall of 1948 during the Thanksgiving season, um, made landfall in New York, um, and from there went to Washington, D.C., um, where he enrolled in a teacher's training college. Um, and from there, um, crossed the plains of this country to um, Greeley, Colorado. He got there just as the summer session um, was approaching at the, um, the, the normal school in, in Greeley, now the University of Northern Colorado. Right. And he enrolled in classes and um, studied English and um, took an almost anthropological interest in the society around him. 
and wrote uh, somewhat extensively about Greeley, which I'll ask you about in a moment. But one event is sometimes thought of as the genesis of his anti-American ideas. And it was a dance that he went to at a church in Greeley. CNN recently did a documentary and said, today's radical Islamic movement started with a song played at that dance, uh, which kind of wrote about later. But do you think the importance of that dance is exaggerated? Because it sounds as though he came to Greeley already with notions about the West. Well, yeah. Um, the song in question, you know, Baby, It's Cold Outside, um, which came from a, a popular film that um, came out just that year, starring Ricardo Maltalban and Esther Williams. Um, you know, Kutta, um, as I said, was interested in, in the American society. And um, he writes that one way to observe Americans was to um, join clubs, you know, engage with them uh, socially. And so in Greeley, he joined a church club. We don't know quite what church this was. And um, he writes in a letter how he attended uh, a dance that was sponsored by the pastor of the church. And uh, the young men and women were dancing to the big band tunes of the era. Um, he talks about how chests met, met chests and, you know, limbs were entwined and so forth. And he was horrified that the genders should sort of uh, mix so intimately um, he thought it was scandalous. I mean, he was a very conservative man. He dressed in a suit and tie. And in, in some ways, he was westernized. But um, his morals, his, his ethics were distinctly conservative, you know, rooted in, in Islam. And um, he saw this as uh, an indication of, of American uh, materialism and um, uh, American uh, secularism. Hmm. He believed that Americans had um, forgotten their religion. Um, uh, they, they, they've given up their Christianity. Um, they're they, hurrying after the false idols of materialism and secularism and so forth. And this obviously, and, you uh, know, leads, for that reason, they're acting scandalously. This obviously leads to the question of, of jihad and ridding society of what he saw to be its weaknesses. Uh, so he was already fairly advanced in life when he gets to Greeley. I want to talk a little bit about uh, his latter years and how his life ends. Um, and, and that has a lot to do with his ideology. Well, that's right. I mean, he returns to Egypt, um, 1950, late 1950, and um, joins the Muslim Brotherhood and um, becomes their sort of minister of propaganda. And he supports the um, free officers movement, um, of which uh, Jamal Abdel Nasser was a leading member, um, and supported the, uh, the free officers until they turned against the Muslim Brothers in 1954. And Kutub was one of those caught in the dragnet. Uh, he was imprisoned and tortured brutally. You know, I must say that the entire movement was prescribed. Thousands of brothers were cast into prison, four of its leaders executed. Um, Kutub was one of those imprisoned, and he endured um, torture and mistreatment. And that sort of bent his mind. You know, he, he asked himself, how could Muslims treat one another this way? Um, and he came to conclude that um, Egyptian society, especially its um, rulership, was not truly Islamic. Um, that they had, in fact, given up their Muslims. They might regard themselves as Muslims, call themselves such, but in fact, um, they were not. 
um, because they do not live in a society governed by Sharia law. Mm. And he said that um, you know he was writing in prison. Uh, censors were looking over his shoulder. Um, but it's in, in this environment of, of torture and deprivation um, that he came up with this sort of um, idea of, of jihad, that the uh, – what he called the jahili, the ignorant society, must be forcefully overthrown. And he was executed. He was executed. He was released from prison in 1964 and soon after implicated um, – in another you know, conspiracy against the Egyptian regime and um, for that he was um, put on trial and executed with two of his colleagues. Um, but by that time his ideas were already in print. You know, he'd been writing in the prison. His yeah. uh, sister had been smuggling these writings out of the prison. They were disseminated um, amongst circles of Muslim brothers who were laying low, um, living under the radar. And um, one of the um, young sort of Egyptian um, Islamists who were inspired by, by Qutb's writings, prison writings, was Ayman Zawahiri, who of course is the, uh, the current head of uh, al-Qaeda. Right. Just briefly, we have a less than a minute. Um, you know, it's reading some of his Greeley writings. This small city of Greeley in which I am staying is so beautiful that one may easily imagine that he is in paradise. He goes on to write, I stayed there six months and never did I see a person or a family actually enjoying themselves, even on summer nights when breezes waft over the city as if in a dream. Do you think there was something special about Greeley or could it have been any small town in America? I think any small town. I mean, he said the same things about Washington, D.C. and about California, which he visited after Greeley. You know, we have to understand that Qutb was cherry-picking. He was exaggerating. Uh, He even invented, I think, some of the accounts of his American experience. But he did so in order to make a grand point, and that is that Egyptians should not follow down this path of godless secularism. Here I am in America, uh, the godless heart of, of, of materialism, and it's not a pretty picture. This is what I've seen. John, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. That's John Calvert. He teaches Middle East history at Creighton University. His research focuses on Islamic studies and jihadist movements. And we talked about Sayyid Qutb, whose writings are influential for today's radical Islamists. Qutb lived in Greeley for six months, more than a half century ago. Still to come, CSU Pueblo becomes a major hub for cannabis research. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's more proof that marijuana is legit in Colorado. At Colorado State University Pueblo, the Institute of Cannabis Research is up and running. Its mission to find new uses for cannabis, like helping people with epilepsy or using hemp in 3D printing. The Institute launches at an interesting time in Pueblo. Voters there just rejected measures that would have shut down marijuana businesses in town. On the phone is the Institute's interim director. That's Jen Mullen. She formerly led the school's mass communications department. Jen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy to be here. The Institute starts with about $1.1 million in state and local funding. What kind of mandate came with that money? Well, you know, the the state really told us that... uh, uh, the kinds of programming that they knew we could provide really comes from a multidisciplinary perspective. In other words, we wouldn't just be doing research in biology and chemistry, but also cannabis research-related education or psychology, engineering, business. And, uh, and the other thing is that as a small, relatively small regional university, we have the flexibility 
to really create the institute fairly quickly and to ramp up the research fairly quickly. And so I think that our government leaders knew that. And also uh, being right here in the hub of Southern Colorado, where the cannabis industry is really booming. Right. Uh, interesting when you list the disciplines and you mentioned psychology. Um, so what would a psychologist at CSU Pueblo contribute to cannabis research, do you think? Well, actually, this particular uh, psychologist is doing clinical research with individuals with epilepsy. So that is the, the psychological contribution. Got but it. we also have the social sciences uh, who are uh, helping us with public policy discussions, talking about the topic of cannabis in society. Which obviously is uh, big, not just in Colorado, but around the country. So you can contribute, I suppose, to a national debate. Uh, how involved will students be in this kind of research? Oh, very involved. We've got 10 researchers leading the 10 studies, but each one of those have undergraduate students, graduate, and post-doctorate uh, students. So, uh, and then we've got six researchers doing the Pueblo County impact studies, and they'll also have students helping them. So we'll have lots of students involved. 10 different studies going on, and we'll highlight just a few more. Uh, for instance, how hemp, the non-psychoactive form of cannabis, might be used in 3D printing. Can you say more about that, Jen? Right. Well, you know, 3D printers actually create three-dimensional objects. And so what we're looking at is, is the kind of composite that we create to make those objects. So right now, that's made of materials like plastic and wood. And this research is going to analyze the impact of incorporating hemp fibers into those composites to see if those objects are still strong and durable. So if we add hemp and we reduce wood, are we making good, strong objects? And if we are, then the possibility there is that we will build things with hemp, just like we build things with wood, and maybe save a lot of trees. Do you think that this makes CSU Pueblo attractive in prospective students' eyes? Or is this a turnoff, perhaps, to some students and families? What have you heard? Well, I think it's prob- it could be either way, Ryan. I mean, we certainly know that when parents choose colleges for their kids, they consider a lot of factors. And so I think it's up to the individual parents. And I know this, you know, we're just like any other unit at the university, like athletics or housing, those areas that parents have questions about, and we're prepared to answer them and explain what the Institute is doing. And doing across disciplines, as you say, will you be growing the plant there, or do you have to rely on, you know, like the federal grow? Both. We've, we actually will be growing cannabis, uh, not cannabis with THC in it, not the cannabis with a psychoactive ingredient that people associate with the high, but cannabis with a cannabinol in it, which is uh, a low THC, high CBD uh, element. And uh, yes, we are going to be growing it, and we'll also be using labs to purchase some of the product. CBD is often the ingredient that medical researchers look to, is that right? It is the primary ingredient right now that medical researchers are looking at. Pueblo County, so there in your own backyard, has also funded research at the Institute to look at the effects of cannabis on the community. What is it that Pueblo County wants to know? You know, that's really important research that we're going to be doing in 2017 because, because the, the cannabis industry is so prevalent in southern Colorado, we have to be asking the questions about the impact of this. And so the study really has four components. Social, we're going to ask about education impact, health care, law enforcement. We're going to look at economic impact, like housing, employment. We're going to look at the resources of energy. I mean, how are we using electricity and water in 
Pueblo County. Oh. And then finally, we got to look at buffer zones, which is the geographical space between all these grow operations. We don't want cross-contamination between the different strains that are growing. So we got to look at it that as well. And that's what our researchers will be doing. It strikes me then that answers may come out of this research that please the cannabis industry and answers may come out of it that don't please the cannabis industry. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do you think it'll be hard to comply with laws, federal mostly, which of, of course prohibit marijuana? Well, um, we certainly are very compliant, and we work with the Attorney General's office and the CSU system legal offices as well. So at this level, with a small amount of research that we're doing, we're very, very confident about it. And when you are working with CBD, of course, it's a much different uh, regulation. You can't really work on a research area with THC-type cannabis. So so right now, the, the type of research and the small levels that we're working with, we're very, very confident that we're going to be very compliant with regulation. And there have been some federal concessions when it comes to research institutions like yours. Do you think that this could change under a Trump administration? Is that something you're looking to? Gee, you know, that political question hasn't even uh, entered my mind, or it's not the focus of the Institute. I do think that uh, as more states legalize cannabis, I think at the federal level, we, we may begin to have more of a discussion about, about the drug. Jen, thanks so much for introducing us to the Institute. Thank you. Happy to be here. That's Jen Mullen, Interim Managing Director of the new Institute for Cannabis Research at CSU Pueblo. Coming up, the story of a Colorado man who's one of the last remaining survivors of the USS Arizona attacked at Pearl Harbor 75 years ago. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Seventy-five years ago today, Japanese bombers streamed across the Hawaiian sky and attacked the American naval base at Pearl Harbor. More than 2,400 Americans were killed, nearly half of them crew members of the USS Arizona. Donald Stratton of Colorado Springs was on board that day. Everybody was there. People were laying on the deck. People were groaning and hollering and screaming Everybody was trying to get a shot of morphine, and my T-shirt caught on fire, and of course they cut all of our clothes off. And my back was burnt pretty bad. All my hair was gone and burnt off. Part of my ear was gone. I had a lot of scars. Stratton is now 94, one of only five USS Arizona survivors still living. His new book is called All the Gallant Men, Stratton's been away in Hawaii preparing for the anniversary, and so we sat down with his co-author, Ken Geyer, who spoke to Nathan Heffel. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Uh, Great to be here, Nathan. Thank you. Can you take us back to 1941 and paint a picture of this 19-year-old seaman first class? Sure. Uh, Dunn was uh, part of that area of the southern plains. Um, You didn't really travel to see the world. You didn't really have dreams and aspirations of wanting to go to New York or Hollywood to make it big or anything like that. You just pretty much stayed on the land. You didn't change churches. You didn't change uh, friendships. You pretty much had friends that you lived with, worked with, played with uh, all of your life. Don was uh, one of 200 students in his high school. He was voted the best athlete in the school. He played four sports. 
specialized mostly in football, loved, loved football quite a bit. Don, obviously his world then was Nebraska. So what was it like for this small town boy to see this great battleship, the USS Arizona, for the first time when he went to Hawaii? It absolutely took his breath away. The Arizona was the flagship battleship of uh, the Pacific Fleet, and it was such a mammoth thing. Two football fields long and about a third of a football field wide and huge guns and gun turrets. He, he was fond of saying, he said, it was quite a sight, quite a sight. And he's assigned routine jobs and, and also to a battle station. He says they practice a couple times a week, but the U.S. wasn't at war at the time. But he wakes up on the morning of December 7th, 1941, walks out on deck. What does he see? He says he's a, he had actually just finished breakfast, and he had uh, several oranges in his naval cap that he was taking to a friend who had jaundice in sickbay. And just as soon as he got up on deck, he saw the sailors all pointing to Ford Island. And he heard the drone of planes and the bombs dropping, beginning to drop. And then he saw one of the planes veer away and saw the characteristic uh, meatballs. Meatballs. Meatballs, what they call those round red decals on the wings of the Japanese Zero. And uh, he just went immediately to his battle station, ran up about... Uh, five flights of metal stairs to get there. It was it was mainly calibrating the guns, uh, the anti-aircraft guns that they had on board and trying to set the altitude right so that when the uh, anti-aircraft shell blew up, it would blow up at a certain altitude where the planes were flying in the hope that it would, the shrapnel from those bullets would hit the cockpit or fuel line or some other vital part of the enemy planes. It sounds like typically that would take some time and, you know, gearing up for an attack, that would be something you could do uh, over a series of minutes. But this was a surprise attack. And was he prepared for that? They were all prepared for that. They drilled really hard. Hmm. Um, The problem of Pearl Harbor is not in the preparedness of the sailors or the Navy or the Army. They were very prepared and they did their drills. They were just not alert. And they weren't vigilant in terms of paying attention to some of the warnings that they, were warnings that they had and preparing themselves for the likelihood of and the imminency of, of war. And Don says the Japanese, while they were attacking his ship, they flew so low that he could see the pilots smirking and waving. It gives the impression in the book that this was very personal to him, that, that sight. It was very personal. And, and you have to take into consideration that he lost so many friends uh, in an instant. And to see your enemy, one, not declare war, but just kind of hitting you blindside. It's like you're just walking and somebody comes up from behind you and this slams into your head and knocks you to the ground. It's that, that type of thing. And it's one thing for them to do that. It's another thing for them to gloat over it. And just as they were dropping their bombs and strafing the ships, uh, had this just wicked grin on their face and waving to them and making all kinds of gestures to them. And the Arizona was hit by several bombs, uh, but the fourth one was cataclysmic. An armor-piercing bomb dropped from 10,000 feet, drills right into the ammunition storage, and the battleship explodes. What happened to Don at that point? Well, if if you had seen the movie uh, Pearl Harbor, the one that Ben Affleck played in, you'll see the Japanese pilot dropping the armor-piercing bomb, goes through four decks, and has a delayed fuse and then explodes. It went through the starboard side of the number two turret, exploding at the, at, 
the same time when it exploded, it ignited a million pounds of gunpowder, uh, 180,000 gallons of aviation fuel for the planes that they had on board, the spotting planes. But they also had just filled up the ship in anticipation for a trip to the West Coast. And so they had a, a million and a half gallons of fuel on, on top of that. And when the bomb exploded, all of that exploded too. And you had this huge, huge fireball and these black plumes of smoke just billowing up and eating up the blue sky. Well, the place that he served in his general quarters battle station was a cubicle made out of metal. And so that metal really shielded those people inside of it from being killed. And Don is at his station at at the time, and he's alive, but of course he's in the middle of this inferno. Here's exactly how he describes it. We were no escape there from down the hatches or down the ladders and everything because everything was all so hot you couldn't hardly do anything. And one gentleman jumped out and I tried to close the hatch and got burned pretty bad, but just pulled the skin off my arms and threw it down because it was in the way. He pulled the burned skin off his arms because it was getting in the way. Don's facing certain death, but then someone comes to the rescue. What happens? What happened was there was a, a momentary parting of the, this huge plume of black smoke. And he saw a man in another ship that was moored right next to them in a ship called the Vestal. And the Vestal was a repair ship, and they had docked alongside of the Arizona. And he saw... Uh, a sailor cutting the lines that held the two ships together because the vessel was fearful that the fire from the Arizona would destroy them. And so he he waves, gets this man's attention, and has him throw a heaving line. And so he throws the heaving line over, uh, missed it once, missed it twice. A third time, Don catches it, ties it off, and now they have to see if they can go across, uh, it's about 70 feet across, and it's about 45 feet down. Now, what down looked like was now the fuel oil was in the water and had ignited. So you have flames not only under the sky platform where they were cooking the metal that they were standing on, but they had flames in between the two ships. They were going to try to just forehand, one hand over the other, to get from the Arizona to the Vestal. And he's burned over two-thirds of his body, isn't that correct? He is. He's burned over two-thirds of his body, but also all the flesh in their hands was burned off and in their palms. So as they're forehanding themselves across this rope, it it was just bare tissue, you know, excruciatingly painful. But they got all six of them across. It was just a a miracle that, that they did. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. Ken Geyer is the co-author of All the Gallant Men the first ever memoir by a survivor of the Japanese bombing of the USS Arizona at Pearl Harbor. Today is the 75th anniversary of the attack. Now, if Don's story ended there, it would be remarkable. But Mm -hmm. it doesn't end there. After a year, he re-enlists in the Navy. He serves on a destroyer in the Pacific. He fights in some of the bloodiest battles of the Pacific, including the last one, Okinawa. Uh, Here's why he says he went back. When I was discharged the first time, I went home. Nobody was around. All the people I graduated with that I ran around with, they were all in the service. And that's probably had a lot to do with me going back. Outside, maybe a little revenge. 
He mentions revenge. Uh, This is not a book about forgiveness. How would you describe Don's feelings on revenge and and forgiveness following the war? Well, he still, and this is true of a lot of people who experienced the worst parts of the war. Uh, They saw so much, and there was such brutality. And the Japanese were so much more brutal than the Germans were, Uh, both in the concentration camps, Bataan Death March, uh, the Rape of Nanking, and you hear all these atrocities that came out. And we're talking about just cold-blooded, not just murder, but torture and gleefully torturing these people. You have to understand these guys, these guys were so innocent in terms of the ways of the world. And they were so trusting, uh, you know, they were going on shore leave that weekend to buy a Christmas present for their kid brother or sister. Hmm. They sent their money home. They wrote to the mothers. And to see them so savagely cut down in the prime of life and all the gifts that they had to offer the world uh, rescinded in that moment. Uh, He was never able to recover from that. You know, there's a part of him, he, he lives, he still has his scars on the outside that you can see and some limitations physically, but you can't see the scars on the inside and the wounds on the inside. And the trauma, the memories uh, have never gone away. And that's part of the price that he pays as a survivor to live with those memories. And it's just really hard to forgive in a situation like that. Was it difficult for you to work with Don to tell his story? You know, I tell you what the difficult part was, of Nathan. The way the story came to me, uh, it was not a story I sought out and I had an immediate sense of the sacredness of it. And I was just there trying the best I could to listen well, and to ask the right questions. And then about in the middle of it, I had some degenerative disc in my neck that transferred to my hands. And I would wake up and my hands would be all curled in together. And they were in a lot of pain and, and stiff. Um, and I would just cry and say, um, <clears throat> you know, God, I, I will recover from this. I will be able to write again and write several books. But this is Don's only book. And just help me to listen well, to be a good steward of the story, and help me to get it done. And the book was finished. It was finished, yes. (laughs) Yes. Ken, you helped write the first ever memoir of a USS Arizona survivor 75 years later. Why do you think none of these men have told their story before? Uh, I don't know why somebody would have would not have written uh, other than that's a pretty bleak assignment to go back to that those nightmarish images and feelings. But I'm so glad. I mean, his biggest fear at this point in his life, as we were we're talking, we we're starting the book. He said, "I'm just afraid the story's going to be lost. That nobody's going to remember Pearl Harbor or the lessons of Pearl Harbor." And and so I'm just so glad we were able to do that. There's only five men still living, a range from 94 to 96. In two or three years, they'll probably all be dead. I'll be gone. Ken, thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Thank you. Appreciate it. Ken Geyer is co-author of All the Gallant Men, 
the memoir of Don Stratton, who was aboard the USS Arizona when it was bombed at Pearl Harbor. He spoke with my colleague Nathan Heffel. It is the 75th anniversary of the attack, and we are hearing music from the movie Pearl Harbor. That's the program for today. You can keep in touch on Twitter at Colorado Matters, CPR News on Facebook, or email us through the website, cprnews.org. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner at Colorado Public Radio.